The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Walking through the book of Hebrews, the theme of this letter actually is that Jesus is superior. He is better than the angels. He gives a better revelation than the prophets. In fact, he is the one to whom all the prophets point. He is a better deliverer than Moses, who leads us into a better eternal promised land. And he is a better high priest than Aaron because he offers a once-for-all sacrifice for sin to justify miserable sinners. And now he is reigning at the right hand of God on high until he places all his enemies at his footstool, and that final enemy will be death. Now, this early Jewish community to whom the letter is written, and thus the name of the book, are facing stiff opposition and facing terrible persecution for their faith, And the writer encourages them to hold fast to Jesus no matter the cost, despite all persecution and suffering, because Jesus is of supreme value, and he holds the keys to life and death. And so he encourages them to run the race with endurance, and he reminds them that many have gone before them. And so as they look to the heroes of old, the heroes of the faith, they'll see men and women testifying that it is possible to endure harsh persecution and suffering. But he says, even better, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who himself endured such hostility against himself so that you don't grow weary. Well, this brings us to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. So follow along in your Bibles as I read. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 5, reading down through verse 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises and the truths in it. We pray that you would open our minds to it, soften our hearts to it, 
Encourage those who need to be encouraged. Challenge those who need to be challenged. Help us to see Christ and help us to be changed by the truths that we behold in your beautiful word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The writer's main point here, just to say up front, is given right there in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Endure sufferings, endure hardships, and endure persecutions. For God is treating you as sons. Now the writer directs us to consider the essential part of any healthy father-son relationship. Discipline. This essential part of discipline is to be considered because he, he wants to use the idea of discipline to help us navigate the fears, the doubts, and the temptations that stem from facing suffering, hardship, and persecution. And the text addresses three issues concerning God's discipline. First, the community's confusion about what God is doing. Second, the actual nature of God's fatherly discipline. And third, how they need to change their expectations of God's discipline. So first, this Hebrew community was quite confused about what God was doing and allowing. Why were these bad things happening to them? In chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, we we learn that they were being persecuted quite severely for their faith. They're being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Some were imprisoned. Others had their property taken away. False teachers sought to undermine their confidence in Jesus and to divide the community. And this early community of believers are exhausted and disheartened by the suffering and persecution. And some began to wonder, maybe we're on the wrong side. You got to remember during this time, you know, the, the, the temple is still standing, so people are still making offerings in the temple. And they're thinking, maybe the critics are right. Maybe Jesus didn't come to fulfill all that he claimed to fulfill. Maybe he's not all he claims to be. Or maybe God is still angry with us for sin and his wrath has not been satisfied. Maybe God is, is not for us and he's against us. Or at least it, it appears that he's forgotten us and he doesn't care Suffering and persecution were causing a lot of them confusion and leading some of them to consider abandoning their faith as they were asking, if Jesus really is who he claims to be, then why was God still allowing such terrible things to happen to them? Now, this is a question not just for the first century church, this Hebrew community, but it's a question many Christians still ask today. In fact, Tuesday night, my wife and I were up just talking before bedtime and just recounting some some painful stories we've heard of, of suffering in people's lives. Persecution, painful things, children who've who've turned away, spouses who've betrayed, and and sitting there going, Lord, why? This is a question we continue to ask, and while we may never know the particular reason why God allows a particular form of suffering or persecution, we can know what the reason is not. And the writer reminds these followers of Jesus, as he will us, that suffering, persecution, and hardship are never evidence, if you are in Christ, of God's indifference or forgetfulness or cruelty or vengeance. You can know if you are in Christ, with 100% certainty that God is not against you. 
He has no need to make you pay for your sin. Jesus has already paid that penalty, so he is not getting back at you for some, something in your past. God is never vengeful toward his people. His wrath was fully satisfied on the cross, and so his posture toward you is no longer that of an offended judge or, or an enemy king who is powerful yet angry, but his posture toward you is that of a loving, concerned father seeking to work through all things, to build you up and mature you. And he will use all things in this broken, sad world that we live in. He will use the good, the bad, and the ugly to prove his good fatherly purposes in your life. God is treating you as sons. And this fact ultimately relieves all of our fears and resolves all of our doubts about suffering. And in fact, God the Father may be treating you quite similarly to his own perfect and innocent son, Jesus Christ. And when you start to realize that, that reality changes everything. It reframes how you see your circumstances. So the community's confusion about why God is allowing these bad things to happen to us, it's reframed by the promise God is not against you. He's actually treating you as sons. And that leads to our next point. Well, (laughs) what kind of father is he? What is the nature of God's discipline? And as we read in this passage, it's always in reference to a father-son relationship. Now, as a quick aside, I'm sensitive to some of the modern ears here who are offended, thinking, isn't that sexist? Why doesn't God say he's treating you as sons and daughters? In fact, some translators of the Bible change the metaphor to children to make it more pleasing to our modern ear. But let me appeal to you, that is both unnecessary and it actually weakens the beauty of what the text says. See, we must remember at the time this letter was written in the first century, women in general, in the culture, in the world, had little rights and low status in culture. They were normally not cherished like sons were cherished. In fact, we still see this unfortunately happening throughout the world today. But we must remember that Hebrews is addressed to the entire church of Jewish believers in Jesus, men and women. So it doesn't take long to connect the dots to understand the countercultural honor the gospel is bestowing upon women. And this is good news. Imagine how it would sound in your ear as a woman living in the first century that in Christ, God is treating you and giving you all the same rights as sons. The same status, the same inheritance, the same worth as any man in Christ. This was countercultural at the time, and it unfortunately remains countercultural today. At the time, no other people outside of God's covenant community taught this. So far from being sexist, this was a radical affirmation of the equal status and value of women, that they were being told there's no second-class children of God. And so let us work at understanding the metaphors of the Bible rather than trying to change them. God speaks in many metaphors. He calls his people a bride, sheep, stones, soldiers. And if you mess with the metaphors, you run the danger of confusing the point and flattening the dynamics of grace. That was for free. Back to the passage. 
Now, the nature of God's discipline is always in the context of a father-son relationship. The word discipline is repeated nine times in these few verses, and there are two things inherent in God's discipline, love and wisdom. Notice, even in the exhortation, it's framed tenderly. Verse 5, not, you have forgotten, but have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as his sons? See, by framing it as a question, it it softens it. it. It exposes to us God's tender and loving heart, even as he disciplines, even as he gives exhortation. And again in verse six, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Whom he receives, he accepts. He's not talking about sons that he rejects. What does this mean? Love and discipline are inseparable. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastises every sons he believes. Now, we, we tend to believe this a little bit more when we transition from the role of children to that of parents. As a child, as a teenager, I accused my mother of all kinds of terrible things when she disciplined me. She didn't understand me. She was regularly unfair. My brother's here this morning. He can attest. She had the audacity to look me in the eye and say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. You are a crazy lady. What are you talking about? It was my comfort, my status with my friends that suffered, not hers, not her comfort, not her status with her friends. I mean, it's just silly to even think about it now as an adult. She's not as crazy as I once thought. As a father of five, things have come full circle. It really can hurt more to give discipline than to receive it. That's true, kids. Love hurts in more ways than we know. Love hurts because discipline is hard. It's costly to discipline. It requires care and time and energy and self-control. It requires self-discipline in order to discipline. And no good, loving parent wants to see their children suffer. It is heartbreaking. Discipline is an essential part of a wise and loving parent's interaction with their kids. I was reading a parenting magazine, actually parent magazine. It's, it's not religious, it's quite secular, but even they recognize that discipline is not only good, it's necessary for a child's happiness and well-being. Discipline is as vital, they say, for healthy child development as food and exercise and rest. Without discipline, children lack the tools necessary to navigate relationships and challenges in life. And if you've ever met a child not regularly disciplined by parents you see the importance of discipline. I've coached several of them. You don't have to search far to find stories of those who suffer their entire lives from a neglect of a father's discipline. Love and discipline are inseparable in a healthy father-child relationship. And that's why the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises every son he receives. So first, the discipline of God is rooted in love. Second, it's rooted, it's balanced, sorry, it's balanced in wisdom, in wisdom. This exhortation in verse 5 of chapter 12 of Hebrews is actually a quote from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. That's why it's indented in your Bibles. And Proverbs is a book of wisdom where a father is giving various speeches to his son to help him grow in wisdom. And he says, my son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
Now notice the contrast between the first and second line of verse 5. Do not regard lightly. Another translation might be do not despise. And the second line, do not be weary. See, these reflect the two common temptations in general when responding to discipline. On the one, the one temptation is regard discipline too lightly. It might mean blowing off restraints, ignoring counsel, plowing ahead despite warnings, and it could sound like, whatever, Dad, or you're being unfair, or you don't understand, or fine, let's get this over with so I can go on doing what I want to do. But the other temptation is to regard discipline not too lightly, but too heavily, and thus to grow weary and exhausted. It could mean believing that this painful moment will be your undoing. This distress, this hardship, this punishment, it'll never end. And it could mean feeding self-pity, constantly complaining and grumbling, and it can sound like learned helplessness that gives up. It can sound like someone saying, I, I keep messing up, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible, I'll never get it right. And so they stop trying. Nothing's ever going to get better. Nothing's going to change. I'm done. Now, the sensitive souls among us usually grow weary, too weary, too discouraged under discipline because in fear we assume the worst. We can't see past the pain of discipline to the loving, worthy purpose behind it. But the stubborn and strong-willed among us usually regard discipline too lightly. In pride, we dismiss it, we ignore it, maybe we mock it, because we just assume we're more in the right than in the wrong, we're, under, we're misunderstood, so any discipline seems overbearing or unwarranted, and so we dismiss it. What is your tendency? Which direction do you lean Are you tempted to dismiss God's wisdom as he disciplines you, regarding it too lightly? Are you tempted to despair and grow weary? Most of us are not exclusively strong-willed or always oversensitive. We can respond in either way. We may respond differently depending on the circumstances. Fearful to discipline at home, stubborn to it at home. Sometimes we grow through seasons of stubbornness followed by seasons of insecurity. So we can relate to both temptations. But our Heavenly Father knows His children well. He knows each and every one. He knows you by name. He knows when and how you grow stubborn and dismissive in your pride. He knows where and how you grow weary and discouraged and faint-hearted in your pain and suffering and persecution. And so he knows exactly how to discipline you in love and wisdom. He knows exactly what to say and what to do. And nothing that he brings into your life is an accident. But he has a loving purpose. And so the writer reminds us, don't regard the Lord's discipline too lightly. At the same time, don't allow yourself to grow weary. Instead, learn to embrace the Lord's discipline. You may not understand it all but you can at least know the Lord is doing something very good in your life, very valuable. And it may feel like it's too much to endure, and you may feel like your weariness will never end, but this too shall pass. His time of stretching you and testing you will come to an end. God's desire is not to crush you, but to shape you, to redeem you. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. The Father's discipline is balanced in wisdom and rooted in love. 
So how do they, this early congregation, need to change their expectations concerning God's discipline? Three things, quickly. One, they need to be reminded discipline's a family matter that proves God's faithfulness to you. Second, they need to see that discipline is experienced imperfectly through earthly representatives, but perfectly in the gospel. And third, they need to see that discipline is appreciated only later over time. So first, they need to change their expectations and see that God's discipline is actually a family matter. Look at verse 7. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? In the context of the preceding verse, the question seems merely rhetorical, um, self-evident, right? He just said that God's treating you as sons, and so the answer is assumed in the question itself. No true son is without discipline. So in the context preceding the verse, it seems merely rhetorical. But in the context following the verse, the question seems more than rhetorical. In verse 8, if you are left without discipline, in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now this answer creates a nuanced understanding by posing a contrast between illegitimate children and sons. Now, legally speaking, an illegitimate child was a child born outside of wedlock through fornication or adultery or worse. And in the first century and in many places around the world still today, children of such illicit unions are not considered heirs. They had no rights. They were not part of the family. And they were left to fend for themselves. They were unsupported and undisciplined. And there are several reasons illegitimate children were treated this way. Their presence would remind everyone of an infidelity. They were a threat to the marriage, and so they were left out. And also, they diluted the inheritance rights of the children of the marriage, which the innocent spouse and the legitimate heirs resented. Now, of course, the Bible never justifies the terrible abuses endured by children of illicit unions. But the Bible does speak about life as it really is, not just how we would have it be. It reflects what sinners do and how sin defiles and how it contaminates and makes a mess of everything. And this is a real-life example that everyone understood, that if you're left without discipline, that's a sign of being outside of the family, not inside, outside the covenant, not inside the covenant. And it's tempting to brush over uncomfortable texts that seem to complicate the issue, but we must understand the harsh realities that illegitimate children faced if we're ever going to understand the good news of God's discipline. Verse 8, if you are left without discipline, you are illegitimate children, not sons. Now, the reality is, spiritually speaking, all of us are naturally born of an illicit union. We are born in sin, and the innocent party is God. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, turned from God. Our first mother was unfaithful. Our natural father was a rebel. And apart from what you might think, the Bible does not teach that we are naturally born children of God. Only Adam and Jesus were naturally born of God, and Adam divorced himself from God. Jesus, this is why we believe in the virgin birth, Jesus was the natural heir. But unlike Adam, he does not hoard his inheritance. He came to share it with illegitimate children like us, born in sin, so that we might become the adopted sons of the Heavenly Father and that Jesus might call us brother. So in Christ, we are no longer illegitimate children. We are 
made legitimate through adoption in Christ. We are welcomed into the family where we receive all the benefits. So what does this mean? Welcome to the family if you are in Christ. You are so loved and you are cherished and delighted in and you have all the rights and privileges. You have equal status with Jesus Christ himself. You will enjoy new comforts and have deeper security, but you better, get, you better start getting used to something. The life of a son and daughter means discipline. Welcome to discipline. Your heavenly Father will set boundaries that you are not used to abiding by. And you may, confuse, you may be confused by his demands. You may wonder why he doesn't comfort you immediately, but lets you wrestle. But see, he is preparing you to live as royalty, as sons and daughters of the king, so that you are able to handle a great eternal inheritance with honor and glory and joy. So far from being evidence that God has forgotten you or doesn't care, the hardships and sufferings in this life that God allows and sometimes purposely brings to discipline you and mature you are the key evidence of God's fatherly care and concern toward you. See, that reframes everything. Hardship and suffering serves as evidence of God's fatherly discipline. In fact, the absence of discipline should raise questions about the legitimacy of your sonship with God. So take heart. When God disciplines you, he is treating you like a child. When he restrains you from pursuing inordinate desires that you feel guilty about that you used to be completely fine with, he's loving you like a father. When you hear his word preached and you sense that heavenly father giving you the stink eye, When God tests you under duress to see if you will trust him and rest on his promises, when he stretches you through difficulty and trials, remember, he's just being a really good dad. And sometimes loving fathers are hardest on their sons because the standards are highest for their beloved children because their desires to provide a great future for them, a lasting legacy, those desires are fiercest with the sons they beloved, the beloved sons. So despite being born in sin and illegitimate, we are received as sons given the full benefits of adoption, which includes fatherly discipline. And he is there with us to strengthen us through every high and low. Discipline is a family matter that proves God's faithfulness to you. That's the first expectation that needed to change. The second expectation that needed they needed to have was that God's discipline will be experienced imperfectly through earthly representatives but displayed perfectly through the gospel. Look at verse 9. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seems best to them, but he disciplines us for good, that we may share in his holiness. He compares and contrasts our limited earthly fathers to our infinite, perfect, heavenly father. Earthly fathers help us understand our Heavenly Father. However, at best, they serve as imperfect representatives. They discipline us as it seems best to them, verse 10. Best according to their limited knowledge and experience and their limited skills. Best despite their own weaknesses and issues and faults and failures. Earthly fathers do the best they can, but it's limited and they make mistakes Those that do a better job set us up to trust God, and thankfully, many of us have had dads who did a pretty good job. And we are blessed, and we respect them for the loving discipline they brought into our lives. But many here today 
have been marred and defiled by a very unhealthy relationship with their father, maybe through abuse or abandonment, and that makes it more challenging to trust God as your heavenly father. And your traumatic experience may make it more challenging to hear this text and to believe what it says, but I encourage you to be patient. While you face additional challenges and you're tempted towards cynicism and despair, hang in there. The wonderful beauty of our Heavenly Father, most clearly displayed in the relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ, can break through any cynicism, any defilement, any pain, and restore hope and heal you of all your disappointments. What does this mean? God gives us grace through earthly fathers, and that is a grace. But He gives us more grace by displaying His perfect fatherhood through the gospel. Now, when a person is from an abusive home, it's hard for them to distinguish between cruelty and discipline. So it's common for them to confuse correction with belittling, to confuse disappointment with resentment, to confuse joking with mocking. And that's why it's so helpful for people from abused backgrounds to linger in a healthy home and to see up close how everyone interacts around the table and, and how dad plays with the children and helps them with their homework and they work through conflict. And as that happens, as they linger there, hope is regained, slowly regained, and their ability to distinguish between cruelty and discipline is regained. And the perfect example of a father-son relationship is that of our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And the good news is we are welcomed into this most intimate family, the first family, and to see what this fatherly discipline looks like, how good and redemptive it is, even on its darkest days, and even through its harshest circumstances. Think back to what we already covered earlier in Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Although Jesus was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is a remarkable verse. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered and, and was made perfect through it? Wait, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was already perfect. How could something that's perfect be made perfect? How is that possible? See, there, there's a big difference between initial innocence and flawless, flawlessness and lasting, tested perfection. Only through the discipline of hardship and suffering and persecution could lasting perfection be realized. So yes, even Jesus needed discipline to be our all in all. So what does this mean? You may need to change your expectations about God, particularly what it means that he is your heavenly father. So you might assume that a perfect father would only permit his son to suffer if he deserved it due to personal folly, sin, or rebellion, but you'd be wrong. God the Father was a perfect father, and Jesus was the perfect son, yet Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And the father not only permitted it, sometimes he orchestrated such discipline. It was the spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. It was the spirit who asked Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. So how does this apply Look to Jesus' relationship with the Father to resolve your confusion and your angst about how God is treating you and what it means to be a son. 
and a daughter of the heavenly king. As verse 10 says, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. God cares much more about your holiness than your happiness. Happiness without holiness, it's fleeting. It's gone like the wind. But holiness can create joy no matter the circumstances that is abiding. It yields a peace, a peace that passes understanding that literally doesn't depend on the circumstances. See, look to Jesus and see how God allows the son in whom he is well pleased to suffer and how he uses it for good. See, God often uses the innocent suffering of his children for good purposes, to melt the hearts of rebellious sinners in a broken world who are running away from God. And I don't know everyone's life story here, but I'm sure you can relate that I'm I'm betting some of you are suffering innocently right now because of someone else's deep betrayal. And you are wondering why, Lord, how could you ever use this for good? But God can use your suffering to show forth the unique beauty of the gospel, of sacrificial love, counter-conditional love, the cost of forgiveness, the beauty and dependence of mercy. So we look to Jesus and we think, how could God ever use something so cruel as the cross? That betrayal. And yet in it we see God melt the hearts of sinners and win them back to themselves so they're redeemed and they actually begin to love again and they leave their betrayals behind and they repent and relationship is restored and who knows? God might be doing that in your life. So look to Jesus to see how God allows the son in whom he is well pleased to suffer and how he uses it to accomplish beautiful things of great worth. God doesn't make mistakes when we suffer innocently and are persecuted. He doesn't merely do what seems best, as our earthly fathers do, but what is truly best. It's what it says in these verses. And what is truly best is that we share in the holiness of Jesus, that we share in his special wisdom, in his peace that passes understanding, in his steadfast love. See, the writer of Hebrews was seeking to change our expectation of how God works through discipline. He reframes suffering and persecution saying don't ever view that as vengeance, but as God's loving work in your life. It proves you're part of the family. And God's discipline, he he wants you to remember that it's experienced even through imperfect relationships with earthly representatives, but he gives you more grace that when you look there and are discouraged, look to Jesus and you will see a father worth loving. And lastly, God's discipline is only appreciated over time. Verse 11 For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Notice the contrast between the present and the future. All discipline is presently painful. It's not pleasant. Only later does it become pleasant and fruitful and enjoyable. And so we must be patient and endure. Now, intellectually, we know this is true, but do we trust it? And I encourage you, in order to trust it, look back in your life and see how God used painful things in your life in the past. Things you would never have asked for, things you didn't want, things you really struggled with, and see how God now today has used those things for your good. And let that encourage you as you move forward with whatever is in your life right now. I had a powerful experience not too long ago. I was at a wedding, 
and some people that were there that I loved dearly and some people that were there that, were, that hurt me dearly. Spoke ill of me, gossiped, slandered about me, closed off opportunities for me. And uh, we were all worshiping together and, and God gave me a sense of peace that in heaven we're like fully restored and he gave me the ability to forgive this person. Now what made it hard to forgive is because really they're the big sinner, I'm the little one how I felt. But that doesn't matter as we look to Christ and we see what he's done for us. It melts our hearts. And really, he redeems everything that when you look back, all the painful things, all the hard things, they're resolved. Whatever that relationship is, God can renew that. Heaven works backwards. And so in Christ, we must realize that we have great hope as the children of God. Let us pray. God, we know that you are our Heavenly Father and that you discipline us and that you use that for good. We know that intellectually, but do we trust it? God, help us to trust what you are doing in our life. It's easy to grow weary and cynical when you allow certain things to happen in life. And while we may never know the exact reason, we can know what the reason is not. Suffering, persecution, and hardship are never evidence for those in Christ of your indifference or forgetfulness or cruelty or vengeance. No, in Christ, we are your adopted sons. And that fact relieves, ultimately, will relieve all doubts. And it reframes everything. And it offers such comfort and hope. I pray for anyone here that needs this hope. Help them to find their way into it and rest in it. In Jesus' name, amen.